In 2021, it's difficult for the average person to imagine that someone born and raised in the United States does not know how to use technology or navigate public transportation or could be overcome with anxiety at the thought of crossing the street. Now imagine being in a position where it's frowned upon to ask for help in those situations or even ask questions because you're expected to just know. I was that person six years ago. For over a decade, I lived in what I call a time capsule. I was eventually released from one of New Jersey's state prisons, but to an area where I had never lived, at an age that people expected me to act in a manner that was foreign to me and without the support needed for my survival. I couldn't get a job because I never had a resume. I couldn't get an apartment because I had no rental, employment, or credit history. I couldn't do the many things that would prevent me from going back to the system designed for me to fail. Unfortunately, I'm not the only neighbor you pass that has a similar reentry experience. So welcome to Hiding in Plain Sight, the neighbors you never hear from. This series will take you on a journey of reentry through the firsthand experiences of six people and where they are today. I recently spoke with someone who explained the effects of an addiction that led to his incarceration and the social ills in urban spaces that challenged his identity. My name is Hanif Parker. I'm from Jersey City, New Jersey. Where I am today, um, I'm a business owner, a college graduate, um, and a community organizer with the Industrial Area Foundation. I own a trucking business, which is Transformative Logistics, um, and I provide jobs to people who are formerly incarcerated or people who have been overlooked in the trucking arena. While listening to Honey's story, I couldn't help but think about the war on drugs declared by Nixon in 1971. Many currently illegal drugs, such as marijuana, opium, coca, and psychedelics were used for thousands of years for both medical and spiritual purposes. Eventually, tides shifted in urban communities and a broader cultural backlash ensued with discriminatory drug laws. At the height of the drug war hysteria in the late 1980s and early 1990s, a movement emerged seeking a new approach to drug policy. We are still in the midst of the residue of the drug war, including the 94 crime bill through mass incarceration. It is beyond time for a reduced role of criminalization of drugs and increased access to health-based treatment and harm reduction services for people who need them. Um, I was sentenced to a 20 with an 85%, which is 17 years. Um, I was 19 years old when I was sentenced to um, that time. And when I committed my crime, I was under the influence of PCP. Um, Jersey City is a very rough landscape. Um, I was acculturated in the 1980s and 90s. Um, so all of the tropes of the inner city um, I kind of took on that in my own identity. And when I say that, it's um, a place of violence, a place of addiction, a place of just, you know, all of the tropes of the inner city. So I grew up in a, in a household where um, some of my family members had fallen to addiction and I fell to addiction. It's often the drug of the time that's more socially acceptable. But there was this kind of, there was this kind of disassociation with being an addict because 
the younger generation was trained to look at an addict as somebody who used heroin or somebody who used cocaine. When my time was PCP, angel dust, uh, water, some of the nomenclatures ascribed to using these drugs. And so we often identify drugs as being like unfettered in you know, urban spaces, typically the, the quintessential place like Jersey City, no. You identify those places being areas where drugs are sold, where drugs are used. After spending his young adult life incarcerated, Hanif made a huge shift. He separated from his past drug addiction, discovered himself through his deep affinity for religion, continued his college education, and became secure with the self-identity that was not defined by his adolescent experiences. But upon re-entry, he was not seen in the manner that he had grown. I was gonna finish my, I was gonna finish my bachelor's degree. I was gonna apply to law school, but that's not the way it rolled out. Like when I came home, the state largely looked at me as a, the same person I was when I was 19 years old. So as an addict. So the first thing they, they did was Upon my upon my release, when I went to see parole, they put me in an intensive outpatient program, which took me outside the workforce because I was assigned to this program four times a week for a minimum of 13 to 15 hours. So it was like no way that I could get a job. And I'm saying like, don't I have to get a job? Like, no, the only criteria for your parole is that you complete this program. And I just couldn't understand that because I wanted to get a job. I felt like that was the most important thing for me to do to establish myself a, a you know, a, a working, a, a working dexterity. So once I started school, it would just be second nature to work and go to school so I can provide for myself. It is imperative to recognize that a second chance for some may be a first chance for others. When you're starting at the finish line and you've paid your debt to society, then that chance begins. Let's put it like this. A direct consequence is to serve a sentence confined as a way to make amends. Sentencing does not include minimize access to housing or a job or education. Those are collateral consequences. And let me also point out that according to the National Institute of Justice, more than 44,000 collateral consequences exist. Based on his experience and the experiences of his peers, I asked Hanif what he thought about those consequences and what was missing during the process of reentry. Reentry is a is an area that's rife with many things that I mean we could implement, but the chief concern for reentry is of course is housing. And, and job readiness. A lot of people come home from prison and they don't wanna go back to the same space that they were. They had this identity because they have to live up to that identity. They have to live up to that identity when you come back. There's a narrative with, with you in that space. So reentry is a place where I see this healthy marriages of giving a person options in where they can live and options in where they can work. 
with New Jersey having one of the highest racial and income disparities in the country. Reentry tends to be confined to specific areas. Autonomy is oftentimes erased when choosing to disassociate yourself with past people, places, and things. So I asked Hanif his opinion about that discrimination. Black and brown people have been facing NIMBY in so many different ways for years. I mean, redlining, just to be specific. But I think if we come to terms with reality of what it really is, um, and people who act on their interests, and I say that to say like when a person's behavior works in congruence with what they verbally profess, like, listen, I'm trying to seek employment, I'm trying to see that, there should be no place for NIMBY. There shouldn't, a person shouldn't be consigned to a specific area just because they're formerly incarcerated or just because they're black or just because they're brown. That it, it shouldn't be like that. So NIMBY has, should have no place. NIMBY should be politically challenged because who is a person to say like, not in my backyard because you're formerly incarcerated or not in my backyard because 30 years ago under the influence of alcohol, under the influence, and there's no context with NIMBY. If you really want to be specific, contextualize everything that happened. Nothing happens in a vacuum. So let's not let NIMBY exist in a vacuum. To wrap up our conversation, I asked Hanif what he would tell his younger self if he had the chance. The first thing I would tell my younger self is take education serious. I think education um, has the means to cure so many of the ills that we, we see in society. But I will also tell my younger self to not get high. Drugs distort so many people's minds and ravish so many people's lives. When you get to the crux of incarceration and you look at the numbers, data supports that. Like 97% of crimes are related to drugs in one way or another. What would happen if we paid attention in a measurable way, not only to the impact that formerly incarcerated individuals have on communities, but to how they can enhance it? This is Tia in Newark, and thanks for listening to another episode of Hiding in Plain Sight, the neighbors you never hear from. And if you're interested in ways to get involved with helping our neighbors locally, I encourage you to visit njforthouse.org. That's njforthouse.org. Or allofusarenone-northernnj.com. That's allofusarenone-northernnj.com. This series is part of the Nork News and Story Collaborative, made possible with the funding support of the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation and the Victoria Foundation. The Nork News and Story Collaborative is committed to elevating community-driven storytelling to fill information gaps in local and national media. The collaborative trains community members in storytelling, media making, and other creative art forms to share and amplify their experiences. It's laying the groundwork for a collaborative network that will address longstanding information inequities in Newark, New Jersey. For more information and to hear local stories, visit www 
nookstories.com.